Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would answer patron emails today. This first email is not an email. It's on our, it's a comment question on our Discord page. If you want to join our Discord, do that. This question says, my boyfriend and I have had this constant debate about the difference between sympathy and empathy. I have taken a few communications classes in college and between educational videos and textbooks, there always seem to be the there always seem to be differences about the definitions of sympathy and empathy. I'm curious to see what you guys see as the definitions of sympathy and empathy. End of question. Yeah, I've seen this before. When I was young, growing up in the 70s and 80s, sympathy meant to have caring feelings towards other people, as in, I have sympathy for those who struggle with poverty, or when you are feeling sick, I have sympathy for you. When we look up the definition, there are two main definitions of the word sympathy. Number one is feelings of pity or sorrow for someone else's misfortune, Um, as in, they had great sympathy for the flood victims. They had great sympathy for the flood victims. The opposite of sympathy in this usage is indifference. So you have sympathy on one end and indifference on the other end. So sympathy is a good thing. Another common definition is understanding between two people. So you can have, you can be simpatico, if you will. A a sentence here is, the special sympathy between the two boys was obvious to all. And then I went to grad school and I learned about this other word, this other word called empathy. I remember learning it in the first couple weeks of grad school and I'd heard the word before, but didn't really understand it that well, and it wasn't used in the common culture as it is today. I went to grad school in 1995, and I learned that empathy was to feel someone else's feelings. Therapists are supposed to have empathy for their clients. Uh, To use in a sentence, when someone falls down, I empathize with their pain, or I feel their pain, or... When my client is sad, I feel their sadness. I have empathy for their sadness. If we look up the definition, it says, the action of understanding and being sensitive to and vicariously experiencing the feelings of others. So you understand someone's feelings, you're sensitive to someone's feelings, and you almost vicariously feel, or you do vicariously feel those feelings. When someone else is sad, you actually, you feel sad. So sympathy and, and empathy are both good. Sympathy is caring, and you might have them both at the same time. You might care about someone. You might feel bad for somebody, like, oh, my God, that I feel really bad that that person suffers from PTSD. I feel bad for them. I have sympathy for them. But that's different from empathy, right? To have empathy is to actually feel the feeling. So if I'm talking with someone about PTSD and I and I feel the fear in my bones uh, and I feel the distress that they're feeling then I have empathy for them so you see the difference there sympathy is to care and to feel bad for someone these that's a good thing and empathy is to actually feel the feelings to really understand the feelings that they're going through Both are positive. Then the internet happened, and these videos started cropping up about 15 years ago. I remember starting to see them, and I was instantly enraged by these videos because they were trying 
a good thing. They were trying to help people to have empathy, particularly people who were suffering grief. I remember this one video ages ago was this. It's probably still on YouTube. It was a cartoon and but and they were trying if someone was suffering from sadness or grief or something and then someone comes along and they're they're trying to teach people how to care for people who are grieving essentially. But in the process they threw sympathy under the bus because they portrayed sympathy as dismissive pity or condescension or something. And they were saying, don't have sympathy, have empathy. And I just want to remind people, if you're seeing something on YouTube, that doesn't mean that it is, uh, that it passes academic rigor. Uh, and we want to think, you know, this is, there's a similar thing going around in movies and, you know, lay people saying, the definition of insanity is trying things over and over again and expecting different results. That is not the definition of insanity. Under any circumstances, that is not the definition of insanity. <laughs> um, you could say in a sort of slang term, it's insane to try something over and over again and, tr- and expect different results. But that's not what people say. They say the definition of insanity. And this, you know, this sort of builds on this, um, this stigma uh, that's like, well, in, insane people, they keep trying things over and over again, expecting different results. No. Like, do you have no idea what mental illness is? It's something you're suffering from. It's not trying something. It's just really silly. Anyway, so as these videos started coming up, up this new definition started making the rounds. I would hear people saying empathy when they actually should be saying sympathy. The empathy was sort of moving in on the grounds of sympathy. And sympathy started being seen as this very negative thing. Um, But again, empathy and sympathy are both good. Uh, The definitions have not changed just because people are using it differently. Now, language changes. The word literally seems to be changing to an opposite meaning. It used to mean literally, and now it means virtually or not literally, (laughs) figuratively. Sometimes people say, you know, literally, my head was exploding. And it's like, no, that's literally not the word for literally. But things change. And I've seen a lot of things change in my lifetime. I've seen the invention of OMG and LOL and the word texting. That I mean, just think about that word. That word didn't exist until uh, 20 years ago or something. Uh, so there's words that we use, and, and that's fine. But I, I don't feel like we need to do this. I don't feel like we need – we have words for what we're looking for, i.e. condescension. Let's read the definition of that. Condescension is an attitude of patronizing superiority, to use in a sentence. Elena seemed determined to be helpful to, to the newcomers, yet in a manner that frequently exhibits no small amount of condescension. So Elena is determined to be helpful, but she comes across as being condescending because she is patronizing and superior. So we don't we don't need to use sympathy in that way because we already have a word for it. It's called condescension. It's like saying, well, I'm going to start calling New Jersey New York. And you're like, no, we already have a New York that's a New York and and. We have a word for New Jersey. It's called New Jersey. We don't need to call it New York as well. (laughs) We have condescension. We have patronizing. 
We have other words for the negative side. We don't need to get rid of sympathy and sort of bleed empathy into sympathy. Another word that is often used in this way is pity. Pity is also not bad. Again, maybe language will change over time, and I just need to realize that. But when I grew up, pity was a good thing. Pity is actually very similar to to sympathy. In a lot of ways, it's the same word. In fact, the definition of pity is sympathetic sorrow for one's suffering. So it literally uses the word sympathy in the definition of pity. So you feel bad when someone else is suffering. That's what pity means. But a lot of people will say things like, don't pity me. And then people start associating pity with negative things uh, when they really should be saying, don't condescend to me. Pity I'm less attached to because there's not a lot of people that use that word. And in the 80s, Mr. T used that all the time. I pity the fool. But sympathy is a wonderful word because empathy is really quite specific. In the clinical world, empathy is feeling someone's feelings. That's a very specific thing in, in, in therapy and in psychotherapy and counseling. To feel our client's feelings, to, to really be in their shoes. When they're sad, I as a therapist feel sad in my heart. I'm feeling it in the moment. If I see a news story about someone who went bankrupt and lost their house, I'm I, I probably you know it's just a passing news story. I'm probably not going to have empathy for that person because I, I don't know them. They're not. It's just a news story. But I have sympathy for them. I surely don't necessarily have empathy for that person, but I have sympathy. I care and I feel bad for them, right? And I have I pity them. But that's I don't condescend to them. I feel bad for them. I genuinely feel, but I don't feel empathy because I don't know them and they're not with me and they're not telling me their story. Empathy is a visceral, emotional experience. It's very dear to us therapists. So let's keep sympathy the way it is in the in the. I was worried that when I looked up the definition of sympathy, there'd be a new definition given the new usage of the term. But it's steadfast. It's still there. Let's continue. So I don't know which side uh, a Discord person, real sub babe, I- I'm agreeing with, whether it's your boyfriend or you, but um, that is my uh, talk on that. And again, I'm not saying uh, this isn't my opinion. This is the definition, literally the definition that is in the dictionary. Okay, let's go on to another email. Actually, before I go on to another email, I should also say that there's a lot of debate in philosophical psychotherapeutic circles around the word empathy. Can you truly feel someone else's feelings or is it just your projection? Is it just your idea of what they're feeling? And I've had, uh, I've taken courses on this topic. I've written papers on it. I've thought a lot about it. I've debated a lot about it. And there's there's just a lot of interesting things to say. So I'm not saying that empathy is this obvious understood phenomenon. You know, we could talk about mirror neurons if you're not aware of that. And there's a lot of things. Now, some of you might even be thinking, well, I call myself an, an empath. And I've done episodes on that in the past. So go ahead and listen to those ones. But in general, people who identify as empaths what I am surmising from their description is that they're, they're very sensitive to other people's emotions. 
and they notice emotions in other people. Uh, you know, above average. They they're above average in their ability to notice other people's emotions, and they're above average in their sensitivity to other people's emotions. Now, of course, all this is debatable as to how accurate they are in gauging other people's emotions. Because I've I've had a lot of people come to me who I think might identify as empaths and claim that I'm feeling something when I am not feeling something. So we. Then that has to do with that debate about empathy. Is it really empathy or are we just having emotions and we're just blaming it on other people, if that makes any sense? Anyway, let's go on to another email. Okay, this next email is from Dakota from California. That's fun. Dakota from California. I listened to your recent episode on compatibility, and I have a question about histocompatibility. Actually, just chiming in here, she's referring to the episode on scientific matchmaking. She has a question about histocompatibility, which is the, well, anyway, let's go on. I've read some articles suggesting that birth control can mess with your ability to smell the right partner. As someone who has pretty much always been on birth control due to endometriosis, this idea is, is upsetting to both me and my partner. Our fear is that I could be attracted to him now, get married, go off birth control for some reason, and find the attraction is gone. I was wondering if you could look at the research on this and interpret if there's any truth to it. As a non-sciencey person, it's hard for me to unpack the data. End of email. So basically what she's saying is that uh, I was talking about how there's research that says that we are attracted to people who have different immune systems. And the way we can tell that they have a different immune system is by the way that they smell. You can actually smell someone's immune system, if you will. Uh, now, this is all subconscious, but you have studies where you take people's shirts and you smell them, and then you just rate how attracted you are to, to that person, given the way that their shirt smells. And research shows that people tend to be attracted to pe- And then you take the DNA from those people, and there's a section of DNA that has to do with coding for our immune system. And the more different it is, the more likely you are to be attracted to that person. But the thing here, Dakota from California, is that this is on average. When you actually look at these studies, the signal is not very strong. The effect side is, the effect size is not very strong. And that's important for everyone to understand. Whenever you hear any claim that research shows this or there, there's a significant difference, that kind of thing, the thing you really want to hear and they often don't talk about is what is the effect size? And that's a numerical uh, designation that you might not really understand, but usually they'll use words like slight effect size or moderate effect size or robust or strong effect size, large effect size or something. And so those are the kinds of things you're looking for. The if, I don't know the exact effect size for all the various different research on histocompatibility complex, but you know the smell that you have. But I suspect it is it is small, especially when you consider all the other factors that play into whether or not two people will stay in a relationship together. Um, so research shows that a successful relationship mostly depends on and has very little to do with histocompatibility and the way people smell and has much, much more to do with how you behave towards each other, lowering your stress level in your life, going to therapy, individual and couples therapy, knowing your attachment needs and your reactivity, 
communicating your attachment needs, following Gottman's advice, seeking differentiation, and so on. So those things are huge. Knowing your attachment needs and reactivity and communicating your attachment needs. If you can do that, Dakota from California, you and your partner will do, in all likelihood, uh, wonderful. You're giving yourself a very good chance of lasting. The chance that going off birth control will suddenly cause you to look at him in a completely different light is not very likely. Now, birth control does have a lot of effects. It is a hormone, and it does affect, for many people, their moods, their um, a lot of things. Let's just put it that way. Their libidos. It can affect their libidos one way or the other. Usually it dampens one's libido, not always. So it's it's something but the i i couldn't find any research on people going off birth control and suddenly due to his compatibility histocompatibility um suddenly they don't like each other <laughs> they don't like the person now if you want to look up books cuz sometimes people ask me is if you want to learn about attachment in couples uh, read hold me tight by sue johnson that's hold me tight by sue johnson it's a, all these books are for lay people, by the way. John Gottman has a book called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. Roberta, uh, Roberta Gilbert has a book called Extraordinary Relationships. This is a book on differentiation. And for attachment, also, you, I, I'm not – the book – Look, I've read a little bit of it. It looks good. I bought it just because I wanted to recommend something. It's called The Attachment Theory Workbook by Chen. And it looks like a pretty good book. And uh, if there's any book you get, maybe that would be the one because it's it's pretty easy to read and it lays all the attachment uh, issues out pretty well from what I've seen so far. I haven't read the whole thing. All right. Let's take a break. When we get back, let's read some more emails. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, please do so now. Go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast. That would be super cool of you. This first or this next email is from patron Aurora. She writes, and here are a couple of shortest casual questions for you to answer. What are your favorite subreddits? I'll expose myself by telling you that my favorites are our happy cow gifts. Yes, I'm from Switzerland. And also the subreddit, the girl survival guide, the subreddit outside or our casual conversation or our, our cap chart, cap chart. I haven't heard that one or captcha art, <laughs> not cap chart, captcha art. Um, for me, I, off the top of my head, I, subscribe to a lot of psychology, psychotherapy-related ones, obviously. But I also like uh, HMJB, which is Hold My Juice Box, which is, you know, instead of Hold My Beer, it's kids doing funny things, <laughs> you know, Hold My Juice Box. And, of course, uh, AWW, which is just a bunch of cats and cute dogs and stuff. And then, of course, Zoomies, where you have dogs running around <laughs> or, like, ducks running around. I like to laugh when I'm on Reddit. She also asks here, I listened to your episode on eternal sunshine of a spotless mind, and I was wondering what kind of attachment would a, per would a person have if they had the first, if they had the, if they had, 
Let me read this over. I listened to your episode on eternal sunshine of a spotless mind, and I was wondering what kind of attachment style would a person have if they had the if they had the four first. That's that's what tripped me up. If they had the four first, I would say the first four years. If they had the first four years of their life erased, is there any instance in which science? Is there any instance in science where a similar thing was observed? Wow, my reading skill is going out the window for some reason. So yeah, so uh, she's asking, what if someone had the first four years of their life erased? What attachment style would they have? And have we observed this in science? That's a great question. I'm not an expert on this. So take what I'm about to say with that in mind. But yeah, there are people who suffer from memory disorders or injuries to the brain that will quote unquote, erase parts of their past. But there's a lot of different parts of memory. We have the memory recall, meaning like, what did you do yesterday? Or what's the name of the high school you went to? There are, you can, you sort of flip through your Rolodex and you find the word, you know, I went to Issaquah High School, for example. But what about your memory of your mother? That's a complicated thing. You know, just think about like, who is your mother? Well, you might say, well, she's this tall. She gave birth to me. <laughs> but there's so many different things. And a lot of it has to, has to do with things that you can't really put into words. There are feelings. There are emotions. When you see your mother, if you like your mother, you have a feeling based on that. Well, there are many people, not many people, there are some people who suffer from some sort of injury to the brain or some memory disorder where they, they don't actually remember who their mother is. But when they see their mother, they, have, they smile, they have a good feeling. And you ask them, they'll be like, so you seem to be happy to see this woman. Why are you, why are you happy? And the person will be like, I don't know, but I just feel good around this person. So you don't remember it. But you do remember. You don't remember your mom, but you do remember your mom. So, and the list goes on and on in terms of mem- different memory manifestations of injury and disorders and, you know, things. But the other thing is, most of us don't remember the first four years of our life. So, essentially, all of us are in this camp for you, Patreon Aurora. Most of us can't – for a lot of people, their average first memory that they can remember is around the age of four. I can remember uh, when I was two, maybe even one and a half. I have this distinct memory of looking up the stairs to the house that we lived in. And uh, now, I also know enough about memory to know that I could I could have just made up that memory. But I'm fairly certain about this one because I remember remembering it when I was in, like, kindergarten. I remember being – a first grader and saying, I remember looking up the stairs of our house and we moved out of that house when we were two and a half. So it had to be before that. Anyway, so most of us don't remember the first four years of our life. So what is the attachment style? Well, it doesn't really, uh, attachment style doesn't have to do with memory. It can have things to do with memory, but attachment style is much more to do with, with development. The first four years of your life, your brain is developing and your attachment style is also developing. Your working model of self and other is developing, meaning that neurons are making connections. There are templates and working models and schemas that are being semi-solidified. Now, you can change them later in life, but it's much harder. 
in the first four years of your life, you're you're a sponge. You're, we're, we evolved as creatures to be sponges to our environment and our social environment as a, as a species. And to be a constant sponge would be too chaotic. So at some point, the brain has to has to semi-solidify. It's plastic, but it has to become a, a little bit more fixed so we're not in this constant you know, fluctuation and change. So the first four or five years of our lives were very susceptible to what's happening around us, and our attachment style is one of those things. So as an analogy or as a, as a parallel to this, I doubt any of you remember learning how to speak your native language, whatever language you speak natively. And you're in Switzerland. Uh, I, I did a, uh, a report um, on – it was like a presentation in class on Switzerland. I'm, I have all, everyone had to choose a, a country, and I, I think I was in the sixth grade or something. And I remember from looking in an encyclopedia in 1982 that Switzerland speaks German, French – Italian and something else. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, I guess I could Google that to find out if my encyclopedia was right back then. So whatever language that, that you speak, uh, Patron Aurora, that's the language you learned when you were in the first four years of your life. And I'm guessing you don't remember learning that language. But, you know, the syntax, the vocabulary, your 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 accent, it just flows out of you. Well, your lang- just because you don't remember learning the language doesn't mean it's not solidified somewhat in your brain. As your brain was developing, you were mimicking, you were learning, you were, you were putting things into your brain in terms of a, a, a solid memory or a solid routine of syntax and thinking and, and speaking and understanding. It's the same with attachment. In the first four years of our life, we're learning the syntax of relationships, essentially, and, it, and it's solidifying certain pathways in the brain that it, as essentially equate to an attachment style later on. It's kind of a meandering explanation, but I hope it makes sense. Okay, let's go on to another question of yours. Your next question here is, if there weren't such a thing as a therapist or anything similar, what job would you choose or like to, tr- to try out? End of question. Um, well, the first thing that came to mind is teacher, and I am a teacher. I'm a professor, so there's that. Uh, it's hard to know because I didn't, I, you know, I chose to be a therapist at the age of 24, which is really pretty young statistically uh, in most industrialized countries regarding career choice. A lot of people in my town, Seattle, don't really solidify their career until they're, you know, 30, maybe even 40 years old. So, I just I decided at 24. So let's say I I decided on something else. Well, it's it's pretty good chance that I would have changed my mind by the age of 30. There, but I really liked being a therapist, so I stuck with it. In fact, when I chose to be a therapist at the age of 24, I said, well, I'm going to stick with this for 10 years because I got to go to graduate school. It's going to be a pain in the ass. So don't because I had a, a history of leaving jobs after like nine months. <laughs> I. I really got – I would get bored of a lot of things when I was younger, and I actually thought there was something wrong with me that I could never just settle down with something. And so I said, if I'm going to go to graduate school, I, I, I'm going to commit to sticking with this for 10 years. And 10 years at the age of 24 just seemed like forever. Well, that was 26 years ago, and I'm and I still like it. Now, I will say that I – 
am not only a therapist, right? I'm also a professor, a supervisor, and a podcaster and other kinds of things as well, if you think about it. Business owner in some ways, YouTuber. And so the variety really makes it so that I can um, wake up and feel excited for the day. But I will tell you, if you're interested, very briefly, my career of choice as I was growing up. When I was young, I wanted to be an astronomer. I wanted to be an astronomer for a long time, actually. I'm actually really in love with astronomy. Just love it. I, I watch YouTube. There's this one YouTube channel called Astrum. Astr- Ad Astrum? <laughs> Is that the movie? Anyway, I can't remember. He always says, hello, beautiful YouTubers. He always starts off his videos like that. And they're like these long videos about research and astronomy. Anyway. I love astronomy, and but then I learned that to become an astronomer is like it literally said in the I, you know we had career day when I was in ninth grade, and in the book I, I was flipping through I was like oh okay astronomer everyone's looking up there so <laughs> free of the internet in the eighties if you wanted to learn about a job you went to your you went to your counselor your school counselor and they had all these binders on a shelf. That you and you pulled the binder, so astronomer. So I pulled off the the A three ring binder and I flipped through these these cardstock things, and it goes to astronomer, and it said how many jobs a year open up for astronomers. It said one or two <laughs> in the United States, one or two jobs for astronomy pop up now. I don't know if that's an exaggeration or it sounds like an exaggeration, and it said reason for uh, a new job opening up was someone retiring or someone dying. <laughs> and I thought, oh, maybe it's really hard to be an astronomer. And it is. It, it's, it's not unattainable, right, to, to work in astronomy, to be a researcher or to teach astronomy or something like that. But it, the reality of the job kind of hit me at that point, And I thought, oh, maybe I should choose something more practical. So I chose writer, which, of course, is enormously even less practical, <laughs> particularly since I wasn't a good writer at the time. But I, w- I fancied myself for a couple months as a poet, and, and it was around that time. So I thought, well, I'll be a writer. And I was quickly disabused of that because I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually not a very good writer and was terrible back then. It would take me all weekend long to write a five-paragraph uh, paper, like think of like a page and a half double spaced and I would look over at my friend and she would write her paper in seven minutes. And I just thought, Oh man, there's just, my aptitudes are not in writing. So then I didn't know what I wanted to do. Then I started writing music and I loved music and I would record music and I became like my own producer. And I thought, well, what if I owned my own recording studio or became a, cause I thought I wanted to be a rock star, but I was like, well, that's not likely. And so what if I did some business associated with rock music in Seattle? This is before the grunge as it was sort of building up in the late 80s. And so that's what I wanted to do. And then I went to college and my dad convinced me to pursue engineering because I was pretty good at, at math and science. And he worked at Boeing and Boeing has a lot of engineers. It's a pretty good solid lifelong job track to become an engineer at Boeing. 
And I was, I was headed down that track at the University of Washington. And I just thought, and I, I think I, someone came into class and described the job to us. And I just thought it sounded so boring to me. And I was like, nah. And then I switched to business because my sister had a business degree at University of Washington just before me. And it just seemed like a solid choice. It's like, well, instead of getting like a comparative lit degree or a, or a communications degree or something, which are usually the kind of go-to uh, degrees that a lot of people at UW would go to. I was like, well, I'll, I'll do something that it, that has that might give me some lucrative job after after graduation. So at least that was in my mind when I was 18 years old, and so I chose business. And then I kind of liked marketing, and you know, it was kind of fun, but I wasn't really into it. It just was it just was something to. And I almost dropped out of college a number of times because I just thought this is pointless. I hate this. I hate studying. This is what am I doing with my life? But I stuck it out and I got my business degree from U- University of Washington. I thought, well, maybe I'll open my own recording studio. And then I was in a band at the time and we got picked up by people with money and they paid for us to record in a studio. And I talked to the studio guy and I was like, hey, I want, this is exact, you're doing what I exactly want to do. And he said, oh, no, no, this is terrible. And he gave me a rundown of just how terrible it was to own a recording studio. And had, he said, you're, you probably want to do this because you really love music, right? And I was like, yeah. He's like, you'll never be able to enjoy music again. And he really made it sound miserable. And I'm really glad that I talked with him because – uh, I'm pretty sure he was right. And so then I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I just started, because I had a business degree, I just started working as a as, as for jobs that I would qualify for, which happened to do uh, with actual market research is what I fell into, which is, you know, surveying customers and this kind of thing. And then I worked for a, a, a marketing firm, uh, like a, and then I worked for a hospital in which they would um, – uh, survey the the doctors and the patients about their time in the hospital. We, had, uh, in I was working at a at the hospital in Totem Lake and here in in near Seattle. And again, I didn't really like. It was fine. It it, it paid the bills and I actually spent all my money on musical equipment. <laughs> I remember my first paycheck, I ran out and bought a guitar. My second paycheck, paycheck I ran out and bought an amp. And I was like, finally, I have good musical equipment. And then I was stuck in traffic coming home from Bellevue. uh, And I was just sitting there thinking, this is the rest of my life. I work in an office. I'm 24. I just turned 24, actually. And what am I – I could do this. I, I, you know, I sort of saw my life stretched out before me. I saw myself on my deathbed at the age of – 78 or something and i'm and i saw the the whole of my life of work working my way up in market research you know maybe owning my own firm you know just my whole life stretched out before me and i thought yeah i could do that i could see that working but there's got to be something more meaningful to me because this doesn't feel very fulfilling and so in that traffic moment, just stuck there on 520, I just thought, well, what else is there? And I thought of teacher. I thought, well, I don't really want to wrangle kids because I just – I don't like being the heavy. I don't like being a disciplinarian. It's really just a bummer to have to discipline kids. You teachers out there know that, right? It's just like one of the worst things about your job if you have those kinds of kids is just having to tell them what to do. <laughs> 
and deal with the kids who are being, you know, impertinent. But so I thought, ah, I don't, and plus I don't really like speaking in front of crowds. I'm pretty shy. And then all of a sudden therapists just popped into my head because I'd had a therapist a few years before that. And everything just made sense. Like it was weird. I just thought therapist, oh my God, there's so many different things that there being a therapist would involve and would, you know, make me happy is I think I get to make my own schedule, which actually is true once you're in private practice, which would be great because I hate waking up in the morning. And that was a big thing about working as a businessman in, in Bellevue, Washington, was having to wake up at the crack of dawn. I'm just not a morning person. Anyway, I could work from an office in my home, which is also true. I don't have to commute on 520 anymore. Um, I could I could think about why humans are the way that they are. I could I could listen to people. I could really help people. I could talk with people. I could talk with colleagues about the human condition and about the meaning of life. I do this all the time. I love this kind of stuff. And boom, within a few months, I was applying. And within a few months after that, I was in graduate school. And then a couple of years later, I was, I was graduated and practicing. And here we are. Anyway, another question. If Seattle was a – well, so t- did I answer your question? What job would I – like to choose, and like I said, I guess teacher. But I think, you know, if I was to really fantasize about other kinds of jobs that have crossed my mind, you know, I've thought about being a police officer, ironically, or in the military. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't like it, but there's a certain romanticism about it, I guess. I've probably seen too many war movies and police TV shows or something. Uh, what other job? Librarian kind of appeals to me. You know, you're just sort of in a quiet environment all day, and you probably get to read a lot at at the library. I don't know. Maybe you don't. <laughs> you get to tell people to be quiet, which is maybe one of my favorite things to do. Just joking. Um, dog walker, man, dog walker. That would owning your own dog like uh, daycare, man. That would be a job, right? I'd have to get used to picking up dog poop, other people's dog poop, but that's probably something you could get used to over time. Those are what things come to mind. Your last question here, Patron Aurora, is: If Seattle was a person, how would you assess their personality? Would you like to hang out with that person? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, in a sense, I choose to live in Seattle, and I suspect that if I didn't live in Seattle, I would want to move here. Yeah, I, I, I definitely feel like a Seattleite. I've lived in Seattle my whole life, and so I feel very close to this town. It's changed over the years, but, but I really like it. it um, in a way, it kind of grew up as I was growing up. Like, it was kind of run down and dreary in the 80s and 90s and I think I was a little run down and dreary. <laughs> now it's more cosmopolitan and sort of on the world stage and maybe I'm a little bit like that now too, I don't know. But yeah, I mean in terms of its personality, Seattle, this is just how I see it is that it is a cosmopolitan city but it's also very small and to a lot of people they don't even know where it is it's it's a very forgettable place to a lot of people now i know a lot of you are like oh my god seattle is you know it's this great place when i travel the world occasionally as i do 
people would be like Seattle, especially when I was growing up, they'd be like, is, is Seattle in Alaska? <laughs> Even people in the United States. I remember when Hurricane Katrina hit and a lot of ho- people who were uh, homeless because their homes had been uh, destroyed were being relocated to other places around the country. And I remember this news report, uh, these people are going up, this camera crew was talking to this family and they're like, so it sounds like you might be relo- relocated to Seattle. And the the sad, disappointed looks on these people's faces, their faces are like, Seattle? I was kind of hoping for Texas, but Seattle? All the way up there? I kind of like that. I kind of I like that part of Seattle's personality is it's considered this dreary, rainy, terrible, northern, dark, uh, depressing place, <laughs> kind of emo, if you will. I don't know. I kind of, I I'm attracted to that. I, I like a, I like a good emo person every now and then for sure. For sure. It's also extremely interested in social justice. There's a lot of people who put that at the top of their list. Uh, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of racist people who aren't aware of their racism in Seattle as well. It's not like that doesn't exist, but I would like to think that Seattle is one of the more open societies to social justice, which I would absolutely be attracted to someone like that. Seattle also has a lot of tech in it. And, you know, that can be a little obnoxious at times. You know, Amazon, Microsoft, that kind of thing. But Seattle also has this old charm to it. It's not very old, but there are parts of it that are old. I I recognize old things in Seattle that I know to have been there for a long time. There's There's parts of Chinatown that have been there forever. There's other pockets, Beacon Hill. There's places that have that haven't changed uh, ever. There's parts that have lot, that have changed a lot. But anyway, I'm rambling. Let's go on to another email. Okay, this next email is maybe a little triggering for some people politically, but um, I, f- I find that it's good that we talk about this. So I'm going to talk about it. Live from Montana. She writes in. I want you to talk about the psychology behind removing historical statues as is happening with Civil Civil War Confederate statues. To me, this is like trying to remove history. Statues are here to remind us of what happened. For example, when I see a Stalin statue, I am am reminded of the atrocities committed. Personally, I feel we need these reminders. End of email. So this is a common thing that... Uh, frankly, people on the right will say about uh, Civil War statues and this kind of thing. So there's a lot that can be said, and I'm not going to be the definitive person to say it, but this is how I personally feel about it. And this isn't me as a therapist. This is me as a citizen of the United States. So if you understand history, you understand that a lot of the Civil War Confederate statues were actually, actually erected decades after the Civil War not to commemorate the Civil War, but to be a very clear message to society that white supremacy was alive and well in southern areas. So you had people getting together who were outwardly white supremacists. And if you actually look at the history, it exists. So we're talking around the turn of the century, 1900, you know, 1910, these, these kinds of times, maybe even 1890. So decades after the Civil War has ended, 
and you have people in the South who are still upset about the Civil War. They hate the fact that Af- African Americans, black people, freed slaves are allowed to run for office. And there was, there was tons of movements and white supremacist uh, political action, violent action, lynchings. You know, a lot of, a lot of people associate lynchings with slavery, but really it, it, a lot of lynchings happened. If, if I, th- I think I saw a stat where like most lynchings happened after slavery was abolished. Uh, I'm not sure about that one. But anyway, the point is, is that a lot, of, not all, but a lot of the Confederate statues were erected as a clear message from white supremacists that were giving s- speeches and putting up plaques that says, we commemorate the, you know, the white people who fought for our nation and, and tried to elevate the white people. I'm paraphrasing, of course. <laughs> but so they would have a you know a, a statue to General Lee or something like that, but there'd be a plaque that would say essentially white people are awesome and black people need to go away. And everyone in this in the city when they would erect these statues understood what it meant. The white people understood it referred to white supremacy and not the Civil War really, and the black people understood that it meant that the that white people are in power and watch out for us, essentially, you know, keep quiet, essentially. It's complicated, and every statue has its own history, and, you know, I could go on and on, and I'm not an expert. Listen to other podcasts about this, um, but, or, and obviously read books about this, but the point is, is that when, when we take down these Confederate statues, we're actually taking down a statue that was uh, used to commemorate segregation, you know, white supremacy, um, anti-black people sentiments, this kind of thing. So we're not, so there's that. The other thing is, is is you say here that uh, when there's a Stalin statue, you're reminded of the atrocities committed. Well, Liv, you're from Montana, so you don't know how people feel about Stalin, I'm suspecting, I don't know, Liv, maybe you grew up in the Soviet Union, but people in the Soviet Union, um, depending on their politics right now, you know, probably have very specific feelings about Stalin. Hitler, for example, if you had a, a statue of Hitler in, in Berlin, as, as, and there were many depictions of Hitler during Hitler's reign, should we leave those up just because we want to be reminded of the atrocities? Why don't we erect statues to the victims of the atrocities, statues to the heroes who stood up to Hitler, statues of the heroes who stood up against white supremacy, who marched and died because they were trying to free the slaves and and Jim Jim Crow and help uh, black people with their um, enfranchisement, their ability to vote in the South and around the United States. How about we erect, erect statues for them? Now, you would say, well, but we don't have statues for them. You know, well, why don't we have statues for them? Because they weren't in power. And a statue to them would never have been allowed to have been erected during those times because they would have been torn down. So we have a duty to tear down the past, which involves tearing down those stupid statues that are erected at a time that was meant to um, uphold certain ideas. Now, 
can you have a Civil War Confederate statue that did not stand for white supremacy? Yeah, you could. And they do exist. And people, and we could debate even then, because of course, uh, the historians will tell me, I'm not a historian, so don't ask me, but I talk to historians and they tell me that the Civil War was undoubtedly a war about slavery. It was a, it was a war about other things, kind of, but it was mainly a war about slavery. And so uh, it, it, the Confederate statue could be argued as a statue for slavery. Now, there are feelings about this, and, and I, I get it, and I'm not there pulling down every statue. Should every statue be looked? Actually, it's funny you mentioned this. So there's this guy in Louisiana who does these videos on YouTube that I was watching where he goes around and rates all the racism. He has a racism meter for every statue in in New Orleans, I think. And he, so he, he goes to a statue and he says, this statue is of blah, blah, blah. And how racist is this statue? <laughs> and it's like from not at all racist to Hitler, he says. And he gives the whole history and he talks about, you know, this, is, this, this statue is sort of racist. This statue is Hitler racist. This statue is supremely racist. And so it's a good thing to do. Let's have a conversation about that. And let's have a conversation about in our society about what to do. Do we take down any statue that has to do with racism? And I'll tell you, living in Seattle, we're, there, we have racism in Seattle, but it's, it's a different flavor. In the South, what, I was in Memphis a year, many years ago, and I went to this museum for – it was a museum commemorating the slave um, underground railroad, railroad. If you're not familiar, it's this um, – underground network, not physically underground. When I was a kid, I always thought it was an actual railroad that was underground, but it's actually a network of people who would uh, let slaves get to the north of the United States, and then they could be free. And so they would hide them in basements, and they would transport them in carts with potatoes on them so that if anyone came upon them... anyway. And there's this museum in Memphis. It was Memphis, I believe. And I was, it, we were the only ones there at the museum. And there's no one else there. And the, so the person who was the cashier, she just walked us around the museum and was our own tour guide. And we walked outside. It was a long conversation. It was a, you know, a balmy May afternoon. And I was just like marveling at all the history that I was being told and and all the terrible things that happened in the South uh, throughout history and how complex it was and how we just have – we were just told hardly any of it in our society and how we still live with those – with that legacy today. And she says, oh, yeah. And as we're – as I'm going to my car, she says, oh, one more thing. You see that building over there? And I, I'm like, yep. She says, that's a high school and it's named after a prominent slave trader. And 90, 90% of the kids that go to that school are black. And I said, oh, oh, oh what? what? <laughs> I, I just thought, how can that be? How could you have a, a school, one, named after a slave trader all, after all these times, and two, that all the, it's all black kids that go to that school. <laughs> like, how come they haven't? And she says, there have been multiple attempts to change the name of that high school. But white people always win 
and and they always win the political fight. And so that that high school remains the blah 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 school. Now, I hope in the intervening years, because this was fifteen twenty years ago, that they've changed the name of that high school. But there's still things like that. You know, there's still things like that. And so. So might we actually tear down some history, you know, in the process of trying to trying to correct for the past? Maybe maybe some innocent statues will get gobbled up in that. I saw something on Reddit of and I have no idea of the veracity of the claim of the post, but they were saying uh, it was a picture of someone defacing a statue and the caption below was the irony here is this person in history was was really trying to fight for black people, is trying to educate black people, and this person is defacing this statue because they think they're a they're a terrible old historical white person or something. I can't remember, but but the point is is that we have a problem in our society, and we are we have always gone through change that that since the founding of our country from the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, we have been struggling with the issue of racism and particularly racism against black people. And we are still struggling with it because it, it just takes so long for us to purge ourselves of the sickness. And we are going through a, a convulsion right now where we are, we are doing things. And the overall, I think, uh, our, our arc of history bends towards justice, as Martin Luther King said. And uh, so, yeah, removing a historical statue about the Confederate Civil War, about the you know Civil War Confederates, are we losing something? Maybe. But some of those statues definitely need to go. And Liv from Montana, I, I want you to think about where you got the information that ta- taking down those statues is somehow like uh, uh, denying history or something. Where did you hear that? Because you didn't just come up with that idea. You heard that somewhere. And where did I hear that in, because I had this exact argument with a family member not too long. This was a few years ago. It was at Thanksgiving or something, and he was spouting off about the exact same thing. You know, you can't tear down these statues of the Confederacy. It's denying history. One, it's a terrible history. <laughs> like, it, it, they, we don't, you know, if we want to remember history, again, let's raise statues of people who were victims and or people who fought back Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King. Yeah, you know, let's let's raise historical statues, you know, to them. Uh, President Lincoln, these kinds of people. We can remember history without commemorating and um, elevating uh, people who did horrible, horrible things. And I'm not just talking about generals. Statues in the South are of just slave traders, just people who made all their money or most their money from selling slaves, trading slaves, owning slaves. This is not a, this is a history that we should remember. Absolutely. But what are the statues supposed to be of the evil people, the people who did bad things? Those are the statues we're supposed to have. So, and you know, you, you mentioned Stalin. I, I'm guessing there's a lot of people in the Soviet Union who would 
tear down a statue of Stalin if they saw it. Now, there's a lot of people who would elevate Stalin in, in a certain way because there's a lot of conservatives. I don't know that much about Russia, but the point is, is that it is a conversation worth having. Uh, and I don't know the answers for particular kinds of statues, but we have to, you have to think about where you're getting inf- information from. Try to find uh, vectors of information that is outside of your bubble, because I'm guessing you're in a bubble that teaches you this kinds of, these kinds of notions. You know, what does it feel like to be a black person in Mississippi, in Alabama, in Florida, in Georgia, in Atlanta, walking by a statue to a known slave owner, walking by a statue that was known to be erected well after the Civil War had ended as a message to black people that they were lesser, that white people were superior. What would it be like to be a black person walking by that statue every day on the way to work or taking your kids to a school that was named after a prominent slave trader? What would that feel like? Is it denying history to change those things? Uh, I don't think so. I think to change those things is to acknowledge history. It's acknowledging history when we tear down those statues. We're saying, we now see history for what it was. It was a racist gesture to erect erect this statue. It was not a commemoration of those who died in the Civil War. It was in part, but it was also a message of white supremacy. And the Civil War was based on white supremacy. (laughs) And don't believe anyone who tells you any different. Look up the the primary resource, you know, the primary sources of quotes from the politicians, quotes from the generals. I know it's complicated. There were some generals that it's questionable. I think General Lee, if I remember right, if I remember my history right, it's like it's unknown what his point of view was. But there are plenty of other generals and plenty of other politicians on the Confederate side, the Southern side, who 100% believe. Now, people out there say, hey. Lincoln had some pretty awful views about black people too. So yeah, we have a very complicated, screwed up history. (laughs) And some of the good guys, George Washington owned slaves, Thomas Jefferson. So it's a complicated situation and we need to acknowledge what happened. Complicated, messy, and awful. It's awful that we come from this history. It's just awful. So I employ you, Liv from Montana, and everyone else to, regardless of how woke you feel you are, including myself, to try to learn and listen and really seek out the information that is from the people who are suffering. The, the thing that I think is lost in a lot of these discourses in the news and on the internet is all this has to do with is fairness, something we learned in preschool. It's not fair for half the kids in preschool to get a piece of candy and the other half of the kids not, unless they're being punished or something, I guess. But there's a, there's a fairness code that we learn very early that's very obvious to us. Animals, many higher thinking animals understand fairness. 
So what we're talking about here in the protests, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, we're talking about fairness. We're not talking about special treatment. We're not talking about white people are bad. We're not talking about um, even a political point of view. It's just fair that people get treated fairly. (laughs) Black people should be treated fairly. That's all. Black people who are committing crimes should be dealt with as if they're committing a crime. Black people who are committing a minor misdemeanor should be treated as if they're committing a minor misdemeanor. And black people who are completely innocent until proven guilty should be treated that way. That's all we're asking. We're not saying that the police should go away. We're just saying the police should treat people fairly. And if the police can't figure out how to treat people fairly, then they got to go and we need new people. We need new police because the protests and the public outcry has seemingly not changed much. There has not been a response because of inertia or culture or denial or something. As I've talked about before, tons of research demonstrating that black people and people of color are treated unfairly on average by police, by society, police included, by therapists. I'll just say in my field, therapists have been found to treat black people and people of color unfairly. And we admit that. And what do we do as therapists? Well, we raise awareness. We talk about it at conferences. We teach classes about it. And if any therapist who, uh, if any therapist doesn't, if any student or trainee doesn't agree and say, I don't agree. I think, I think that research is stupid. I think, and, and believe me, this happens sometimes even in Antioch. Antioch is known for a, as a very, very socially just institution. And so we tend to, you know, have self-selected socially, social justice uh, students, but social justice oriented students. But occasionally we get so we have a well, I shouldn't go into this, but we have students like this sometimes, and we kick them out because you are not fit to treat anyone if you can't acknowledge the facts on the ground, the science on the ground that people are being mistreated on average. Can a black person be given a a, a, a friendly warning when they should have get, gotten a ticket? Absolutely. Some white police officers are being nice to black people. Absolutely. But we're talking about on average, we're talking about a societal level effect that we can measure through science. And so that's all we're talking about is fairness. Okay, so what's fair? Is it fair that those kids have to walk by that statue every day and hear from other people, well, we're trying to commemorate, we're trying to remember history. And that child is like, well, where's my history? Where, where are the black people, where are the black heroes of that time? Where are the statues of the black heroes? How come all the statues in my town are of white slave owners? Is, is that the, you know, if we're trying to acknowledge history, where are my statues? And we're erecting those statues ever so slowly. So it's, it's just about fairness. Republicans, Democrats, libertarians, socialists, independence, we can all agree that fairness is right. And so you have to, in order to understand what to do, you have to listen. You know, 
two kids come off the playground and run up to you and they're both crying and they're upset at each other and they're asking for you to make a judgment call about what's fair. Well, what do you do? You listen. What happened? What did you do? What did you do? And you try to piece together the story. You don't just look at one person's skin and say, I don't want to hear you. You don't just look at one person's, uh, you know, the way they dress or the city they're from or their or political party and say, uh, you, you're, you don't deserve fairness or I don't, I don't listen to you, you know. That's why I actually stick up for Republicans sometimes because I feel like Republicans in my circle are treated unfairly sometimes. Because in my circle of liberals and Democrats, uh, the echo chamber will convince people in my echo chamber that Republicans are horrible, stupid idiots without any empathy. And I will stick up for Republicans because I stick up for anyone who's being treated unfairly. It bothers me when anyone is treated unfairly. And that's all we're talking about here is fairness. Black lives matter because it's fair that black lives matter. And it's unfair that we even have to bring it up. That black li- of course, black lives matter. So, golly, gee willikers, am I ranting and am I going to get a lot of emails? Oh, boy. You know, as many of you know, the podcast has become more popular recently. And, uh, it, you know, it, in the past, I could have rants like this and know that my people were listening, people, my tribe, if you will, not my tribe, but our tribe were the listeners. And so I could say stuff like this and feel pretty safe in, in my bubble, if I will, my podcast listenership bubble. And now I really don't know. God knows. So now that was a rant and I completely didn't have any notes. And so I'm guessing I said some historical accuracies. And if, if you want to point them out, it's great. Be nice about it. Uh, if you want to participate in the conversation, I'd love that. I'm just one person. Um, I'm not black. Uh, I'm a, I am Asian American, and I do know what it's like to suffer from racism, uh, especially given my age. The 70s, when I was born, it was 25 years after World War II. 25 years since... Uh, every since they locked up my people, my family were locked up in camps, in prisons, because they had ancestors who were from Japan during the internment camps. My relatives, whom I loved and were the nicest, most uh, docile, obedient Americans you would have ever met, were rounded up, asked to take what they could carry. They had to sell their businesses and their homes for next to nothing or just abandon them. And they were put in shacks in Wyoming in the middle of a, basically a desert. And there are pictures on my wall right now. And every time I walk by that picture, I just, that's unfair. And we have a duty to acknowledge that and a duty to listen. And so that's what I'm trying to do. And I'll listen to you. What are your stories? Particularly black people. What's your story? 
when you see those statues? Do you want the Confederate statues to be taken down? What statues do you want to be put up? Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself. Be fair, because we all deserve it. (laughs) 